Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. If you'll please open uh, your Bibles with me, we're returning to James. We're going to be looking at James 4, verses 6 through 10, located on page 1174 in your pew Bibles. If you'll open that up and rise as we read God's Word today. All right, James, what do you have for us today? Let's hear the word of the Lord. Starting with verse 6, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord delivered to you in your presence. Receive it as such. Please have a seat. In 1986, there was an ocean liner and a freighter that were both sailing in the Black Sea off of the coast of Russia. And they realized that they were on a collision course. They had their radars, they had their their tracking, all that. So the ocean liner captain picked up his radio and he called over to the freighter. He said, we're on a collision course, you need to move your your trajectory there so, so we don't you know, hit each other. And the freighter captain said, no, you need to move. Our, our route is more important. And the two captains ended up bickering for 45 minutes back and forth before the two ships hit each other. And the ocean liner sank. Unfortunately, 400 people died because of the sheer arrogance and the pride of two captains that wouldn't move for each other. I think all of us have walked the path of arrogance before we knew Christ. Maybe some of us afterwards as well. It's always a path that says, me first. Get out of my way. I'm more important than you. That's what I say in the supermarket. It doesn't go over very well, no. However, James always tell, has already told us that those who follow Christ, now we walk down a different path. And this is a path that isn't couched in arrogance and in pride, but rather it's a path that is in wisdom and friendship with God. It's a different way to live. It's a different way to walk. But it's very hard for us to go down that path because only people who are living in humility know how to walk behind Christ. It's a path for all of us who have died to our old selves who've embraced Christ and embraced this new life, this new creation, and it reframes everything so that instead of it all being about us, it's all about Jesus Christ. But here's the question. 
I think the Bible, even right here in verse 6, when you look at it, and James is telling us, you know, God does not respond to the arrogant. He only responds to the humble. And we go, okay, I get that. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, God does not respect arrogance. He only respects humility. And then we ask ourselves, then how can I become humble? What is the Bible actually telling me? How, what is humility? Is that just talking about myself a little less? I, I'm part of a pastor's group, and we've talked about this. We've had serious, in-depth conversations about how many sermon illustrations we can feature about ourselves before it becomes arrogant. And the rule of thumb is one. If you hear more than one sermon illustration that features the pastor in any given sermon, we might be walking down a little bit of a path of self-centeredness there. But what does the Bible say? How can we become less arrogant and more humble? And that's where James swoops in here in these few verses to deliver us an answer to this question. Practical commands that come with amazing promises. Practical commands, how we can walk the path of humility. But before we get into this answer again, going back to verse 6, which as we said way back before we went into our Christmas series, that verse 6 is the linchpin of the Gospel of James, where it talks about God giving us more and more grace, pouring grace down upon His followers. But he says here that it is only to the followers who are humble. Think of it a bit like fire safety. You remember when you're a kid and they'd bring a, a firefighter into the school and he'd teach you about fire safety. And he said, well, kids, if you wake up and the house is full of smoke, the worst thing you can do is stand up and try to run out or walk out of your house. Why? Because the smoke rises. You'll be breathing in all of that smoke and you'll pass out. The best thing to do, the firefighters always said, is drop to the floor. Because that's where the, the air, the, the breathable air collects in the case of a fire. And you can breathe that air and hopefully crawl out to safety. And so James says it's a little like that. If you're standing tall in arrogance, God's grace goes right past you. It flows past your life. Because you think you can do it all on your own. But if you drop down in humility, you're going to find that you are just swimming in a sea of grace. It's so deep around you. All right, so how do we get there? Verse 7. Verse 7 kicks off our journey. It says our first step is to submit ourselves to God. I wish James started on something a little easier than pure, wholehearted, unconditional surrender and submission. Because that is hard. We looked at this when we were going through Ephesians. And we talked about how submission is one of those swear words of the modern culture. We don't like it. We don't respond well to it. We shy away from it. We'd rather downplay it in the church. And we hear that word submission and we just our, 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 our rebellious nature crawls. Think about it this way. There are countless business classes you can take that will teach you to succeed in business by Improving your assertiveness, your dominance in the corporate structure. Not a lot of classes that teach you submissiveness toward your boss or your supervisor. There are classes. I asked my wife. She, she actually works for a company that sells classes. She said, yes, there are classes that teach you how to submit 
not as popular. Go figure. Not as popular. Submission not only rankles our pride, but we have a hard time giving our submission to those we don't think are worthy of being submitted to. And that includes, yes, God. Because sometimes we look at God and say, God, you're not really answering my prayers the way I want you to. You're not answering them fast enough. You're giving me commands that are weird and they're hard. And I don't really always approve of the way you run the world, God. I don't think you always deserve my submission. This bad thing happened in my life last week. This bad thing happened in my life this past year. Do I really submit to you? We have a hard time with that. So submission gets really hard from us, and sometimes the best that God gets from us is a rather grudging, reluctant, arms-crossed, reluctant obedience. That's the best God is going to get. But James writes here in the Greek, he says this word for submission is not this sort of passive, grudging acceptance, like, fine, I guess I have to do it. He says this word is active, that you're actively looking for ways to submit to God. Every day you wake up and go, how today can I submit to God? How can I rearrange my world, my life, my life, my mental focus so that everything is about God, so that I can live my life according to what pleases Him, what obeys Him? That's active submission. When you wake up and you're like, what can I do today for God? That's what James is asking us to do. Step one, he's asking the impossible. But it's a great start. Well, as the saying goes, hell hath no fury as a woman scorned or a sports player when one of their favorite athletes switches from their team to another team, right? Hell hath no fury. 2016, we saw this happen when NBA superstar Kevin Durant announced that he was jumping ship from Oklahoma City all the way over to San Francisco. People lost their minds. Oklahoma City, suddenly, people were waving those flags and cheering them on. They had, and the news coverage reported on this, they had backyard jersey burnings where everybody brought their Kevin Durant jerseys and threw them on a pile in the barbecue pit, and they burned them in effigy. Some of his fellow basketball players, sports DJs, got out there on the air and they were castigating him, saying, you have loyalty to your franchise. How dare you make a decision that is, at the end of the day, a personal career decision. How dare you do that? It's important for us to see that when you matter and you change sides, there's fallout. There's consequences. Stuff happens and people are not always happy. And make no mistake, when we go into verse 7 and verse 8 here, James is asking us to make a career switch which is much more important than an NBA star switching from one team to the next. He writes this, he says, Well, you know how you used to submit to the devil? And you used to flee away from God in your life? You need to change that up. You need to resist the devil now if you're in Christ, and you need to flee toward God. Go toward God. Switching sides is the only way we're going to progress in our path to humility. We can't do the same old, same old stuff 
and become more humble. The devil's way is always a way of self-promotion, always a way of selfishness and self-centeredness, saying it's all about you. Make yourself happy. Give in to that temptation. It will satisfy you for a moment. Then you'll give in to the next one and the next one. We can't be humble if we continue to have that old friendship that James was warning us about earlier in this chapter. Instead, the Apostle tells us we need to take two actions that will have two amazing consequences. First, we're to resist the devil. We need to draw a line. We need to take a stand. We need to say, no more will I be crossing over into your territory, into sin and selfishness. I'm done with these old patterns. I may fall here and there, but I'm done with the pattern of sin in my life. I want to move on from that. I want to grow. And in turn, Satan's going to be hitting you harder and harder with those temptations. This is going to be a spiritual battle you will be fighting for the rest of your life. Let us never forget that Paul said in Ephesians that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. This is your fight that God has called you to. This is why he gives you that armor of God to suit up and fight these temptations. The good news for all of us is that at the end of the day, the devil is a coward. He is a coward. You resist him in the name of God, and he will flee from you. Never forget when Jesus faced off against the devil in the desert, had his three great temptations, we focus on those temptations. We don't often focus on what happened right at the end of it. Right at the end of it, when he resisted Satan three times, the Bible tells us Satan fled from Jesus. And it took him some time to recoup and to start attacking Jesus once more. The temptations came back. But Satan cannot bear to be in the presence of the righteous. The flip side to resisting the devil, James says, is going near to God. Pursuing God with everything you are. Taking steps away from your old self, away from that old friendship, and taking steps toward God. You see how there's a progression here. Taking a step away from your old self and toward the new creation that Jesus is building in you. This is a journey toward humility. And what's so moving here in verse 8 is that James doesn't write here, he says, while you move toward God, God will slow down to let you catch up to him. But he's a busy man. He's a busy man. He's got places to go, things to do. And so you really need to like hurry up and get toward him. I'm getting that picture of a, a big brother and his little brother's kind of tagging along. Wait up, wait up, i got to get up there. James doesn't say, as you move toward God, God's going to cross his arm. He'll turn around, tap his foot, and say, what took you so long? It's not what he writes here. What does he write here? He says that as we come near to God, God comes near to us. He travels toward us. And we see this, I think, the best place that we see this illustrated for us is in the parable of the prodigal son. I always get choked up. I'll see if I can get through it here in the service because there's nothing more embarrassing than watching a grown man cry. But in Luke 15, 20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible that Jesus is talking, and this is again from God incarnate, telling us how God sees us through the story of the prodigal son. He says the prodigal son gets to this low point, right? 
where he runs out of money and he's humbled because he's working with the pigs and he's eating what the pigs are eating. And he finally says, well, I've got to go home. Maybe they'll take me on as a servant. And we see this point where he's been humbled, where he's been brought low. And he decides, I will go home. The fact, the verse says, he got up and went to his father, a disgraced, humble son, head hanging low, goes back toward home. And then the verse continues. But while the son was a long way off, the father saw him, which tells you what? The father was looking for him every day, peering out there into the distance. And the father was filled with compassion for him. And what does the father do? He ran toward his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. father didn't even wait for the son to schlep himself across the threshold of the house. He goes out and he sprints toward his son. His son's like, oh man, I'm gonna, this, my dad's coming to kill me. What's going, what's going on? God is saying, this is how I view you. Take a couple steps toward me and look up and see that I'm running toward you full tilt. And I'm going to tackle you to the ground. And I'm going to wrap my arms around you. And I'm going to say, welcome home. Welcome home. Now the prodigal son, he changed sides, didn't he? He, had, he got brought low, and his friends that he partied with probably weren't happy he was going home. The pig farmer probably wasn't too happy he was losing a servant. But he made this switch. He switched sides. And see how his life improved? He's gone from a place where he's literally in the muck with pigs to having his father embrace him and bring him back into the fold and saying, welcome home. I love you. I love you. I love you. James is helping us here visualize our spiritual journey because we need to see this every day when we resist Satan, when we resist these temptations, when we take steps away from what we know is not the right thing. We are taking steps toward God. And at the same time, God is coming right at us. He's going to help us down this path. Well, remember back when I said that James sometimes gets in your face in this book? sometimes really gets in your face. He does that again, so if you're easily offended, don't read the rest of verse 8. Because he, he gets in your face again. He's like he takes a bucket of ice water and just throws it right in your face and says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What gives, James? You're all buddy-buddy a, a couple of verses back. You're saying, brother this, brother that. And now you're calling us names. Calling us. Remember, this is to the church. This is not to the unchurch. James was written to the church, so he's calling us sinners. He's calling us double-minded cheats. Double, you know, we're two-timing cheats. Well, as a pastor, James knows that it's not always effective to softly nudge people out of sin. You know what you're doing is really bad. You shouldn't do it. Come on, let's go, let's go do some good things. Sometimes... You know, what we have is what we call tough love. And James does some really good tough love right here because he's throwing this right in our face and he's saying, you people, I see people coming into the church every week that say, well, I'm forgiven. I generally do good things. I pray now and then. So what's the big deal? And James is taking a line. He's saying, sin is a big deal and you don't think it is. And so wake up, you sinners. Wake up, you double-minded. You're trying to serve sin and you're trying to serve God at the same time. R.C. Sproul famously said, every single sin 
is an act of cosmic treason where you are trying to usurp the authority of God and say, I know better than you. Get down off your throne because I belong there. That is what sin is. It's not something where boys can be boys and we're only just human and all that other garbage. When we sin, we regress in our journey to become humble. So James shocks us. He forces us here to look at the ugliness of our sin. Every Sunday, I hope that the lowest point of the Sunday morning service is our confession of sin. When we corporately confess and then we personally confess our sins to God, and we realize how many times in just a span of one week we have sinned against God, how many times we have told Him, yeah, but I want to do my thing my way. How many times through the acts of commission and omission we have sinned against our Lord. And then I hope the best part of every service is the assurance of pardon. When God tells you, but if you confess, I have forgiven you. And it is no more. James says here that a humble person doesn't look the other way. Instead, they do two things. They wash their hands. This is a physical action. Meaning clean up the actions in your life. Wash yourself. And then it says purify your hearts. So not just washing your, cleaning up your external act. Clean up your internal act. Clean up your heart, thoughts, your desires. All the things none of us can see. But you know are there. Things you think. The unkind thoughts. The lustful thoughts. The angry thoughts. The uncharitable thoughts in your life. Clean them up. And then mourn, wail, have these times of confession. God doesn't call us to live lives of grief and gloom, but there should be times that we come before him and just say, Lord, get away from me for I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I have hurt you personally. I have aggrieved you. Forgive me. I don't know if any of you know the, the gangster Mickey Cohen. Does anybody remember him from history? He was, a, he was an L.A. mobster boss for like from the 1930s to the 1960s. He was a big deal. Billy Graham used to go up to Mickey Cohen regularly to meet with him. And everybody wanted to meet with Billy Graham, right? So, so that was his in. And he would try, Billy Graham would try to convert Mickey Cohen. And so, in fact, it looked like he even succeeded there was a time that Mickey Cohen publicly said, yes, I follow Christ. I believe in salvation. And he said this. And yet, the church and newspapers were pretty quick on the uptake that at no point Mickey Cohen changed his life. That he was still associating with his gangster friends. He was still engaged in a life of unrepentant crime. And when he was confronted with this, newspapers actually came up to him and said, you say you're a Christian, but you're still a mob boss. He said, well, nobody told me that I would have to give up anything to follow Christ. He was not informed of that fact. Well, clearly there was no remorse, no repentance, no true conversion for Mickey Cohen. Maybe later in life, I don't know. He had no desire to lead, leave that road of the devil, leave that road of arrogance and self-promotion. He didn't want to give up anything. But do we? Do our sins hurt us so, so much that we want to flee away from them and toward our Savior? Do we grieve over our failures? 
and look back. Not to beat up ourselves again and again. Not to live a life of guilt. We are not called to do that. But do we look back and are honest with what we've done so it keeps us on the path of humility? At this point, here, as we walk this path, in fact, as we crawl down on our hands and knees on the path of humility, something rather astonishing happens. And we see this at the last verse. It says, then the Lord lifts you up. You try to lift yourself up, which is what the devil says, and you can only lift yourself up so high. You can only promote yourself so much. The most popular, famous person in the world with best-selling books and giant concert series and television appearances can only lift themselves up so high. But God can take the humble and lift them up way higher than that. Look at how Jesus lived. If we need a prime example of one who lived a life of humility, we can start and end in no greater place than our Lord who humbled himself as we looked over the Christmas season to become a weak child, to live a life of pain and suffering and, and hardship, trying to teach disciples who again and again didn't get it, becoming frustrated, humbling himself to a death on the cross, not just a humiliating physical death, but a spiritual death too, humbling himself. And then what did at the end, how did that all end after the resurrection? that God the Father took the Son and lifted Him up and put Him on the throne. And there He sits to this day. And if God can lift Jesus Christ up and put Him on the throne, He can lift you up. No, we won't be on the throne, but we will be next to it. We will be next to our Lord. And this is the path of Jesus. This is a path that He took. And as you read the Gospels, and I encourage you this week, Look at the Gospels and just look, ask yourself that question. How is Jesus being humble? Is he being humble in how much he gave of himself to teach? How he's always giving of himself to be patient with people, to have compassion upon them, to heal them, to provide for them, to give of himself again and again, emptying himself out over and over again for these people. Often people just, in the end, walked away from him. Look for those examples and then say, I want to follow that. How can I do that today in my life? Let's walk the path of humility together, brothers and sisters, encouraging each other as we go down, knowing at the end it's not that we'll be forgotten, that the Lord will lift us up. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we must ask your forgiveness, for we are not humble. We are often too involved in ourselves, in our comfort, in our progress, in our desires, that, Lord, too often we don't look to you. But I know, Lord, you work in our lives that bit by bit you can teach us to become humble. And I just pray for that. Give us, Lord, this gift of humility. Teach us what it is through your Son, through our lives, to lower ourselves, to serve you, to serve others, to put you, in, uh, you first, to consider others as greater than ourselves in this humility. Lord, knowing that as we do that, we honor you, we exalt you, we glorify you in your name, and we grow your kingdom as you work through us. May we become a church of humble spirits, loving you always in your name.
Amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 10.30 a.m., either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.